0: On April 26th, 2019, the record for the biggest box office opening weekend was broken with over $350 million being made in a single weekend. This movie went on to bring in a record $2.7 billion, making it one of the most successful and popular films of our day and age. This film was The Avengers. Endgame, a superhero movie. What's also interesting is that out of the 10 most successful movie openings to date, six of these are from the same superhero series. More broadly now, we see these movies being produced at record rates with their wild success in our day and age. And we kind of have to wonder, why is it that these superhero movies and TV shows are so popular? What is so gripping about them? And while while I don't have all the answers that might be given, I have a suspicion that has something to do with the basic plot line of these films. Now, Now, for those of you who haven't seen a superhero film, the basic idea is almost the same in every single movie that you watch, right? There's a hero. With a superpower or super ability, and he uses it for good. He he defeats this evil villain who has brought death and destruction to the world, and, and then the superhero at the end will do this at great cost to himself. And then at the end, the day is saved. Everyone prays to the hero, and everyone moves on with their life. This, of course, is an oversimplification of most of these movies, but it summarizes in a large way the general thrust of these movies. And people are willing to watch one after another after another, even though the ending is very predictable, right? The ending will nearly always be the same. The evil villain is defeated. The people rescued. The day saved. But part of the reason I I think people can't get enough of these movies It's because the plot line of these stories resonates with our own soul. There's something about them, some truth that is being spoken that we desire and that we long for. You see, we recognize, each of us, that there is something broken and corrupt about the world we live in. We feel it when we experience sorrow and, and, and loss when evil things take place to us. And we desperately desire that someone would rescue us from the evils which we often feel so helpless to face on our own. COVID has no doubt exasperated these feelings in our culture. We wish and hope for things to be restored to the way that it should be by someone or something. And these movies, I think, in a very small sense, picture what we truly, truly want. We want someone to destroy the evils we face and to save us from our helpless estate in this very, very broken world. And in today's account, in Mark, we find the answer that all humanity truly needs and is truly longing for, even though they don't know it, Jesus Christ. And in Christ we find one here in our text who will sacrifice at great cost to himself. Yes, even going to his own death for us, and in so doing, delivering us from the ultimate evil that ever existed on planet Earth, our sin. Jesus will face sin and death, and he will conquer it for us, and in so doing, it save us. My hope is this morning that as we come to see Jesus in the text, that we would see him all the more clearly. And we would worship him for all that he has done for us, for he is the only one that can truly save us. So this brings us to Mark chapter 15 in your Bibles today. Please turn there with me, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 39. As we come back to this text, we remember what happened last week. Jesus has undergone a rigged trial against him in the middle of the night. The Sanhedrin, consisting of the highest ruling officials of the Jews, have decided to sentence Jesus to death for blasphemy. But because they can't get him to die based on this accusation, they need to have another accusation. And they accuse him of making himself out to be the king of the Jews. And so after plotting and scheming many countless nights, they enact their plan, and they send Jesus to Pilate for his crucifixion. So they tie Jesus up, we read here, and they lead him to the Roman authorities to get the death penalty. The person in charge is a man named Pilate, and Pilate is a Roman governor of that region. And it is his permission that they need to lawfully put him to death. So they have Jesus tied up, standing before Pilate, and they began to accuse him of many treasonous things deserving of death. But the main thing they go for is the threat that Jesus poses to the Roman governor. He makes himself out to be king. And because of this, he needs to die. This is the basis of their charge. So Pilate asks Jesus if this is the case. He says, are you, Jesus, the king of the Jews, as these people are saying about you? Are you really making yourself out to be an enemy of Rome by doing this? You say so, Jesus responds. You say so. kind of wonder, what does does Jesus mean by that response? And by this, I think Jesus is saying something to the effect of, yes. Yes, I am king, but not in the way that you think. Your idea of being king and my idea of being king are totally different. This is what Jesus probably means. Yes, but I'm going to qualify what that means. So he doesn't deny what Pilate says, but he seems to affirm the implications. Yes, I am king. Well, the chief priests don't stop here but continue to accuse Jesus of a great deal of other things. And they just lay it all out there. They're going for it. They want Jesus put to death. And so they throw out every single crime they can think of to get Pilate to kill Jesus. And as they do this, we read that Jesus remains silent through it all. And Pilate, he's blown away by that. He's blown away by Jesus' silence, and in disbelief, he asks, Aren't you going to defend yourself, Jesus? Aren't you going to answer what they're saying to you? Look at how many things they are accusing you of. As we all know, our natural response when accused falsely is to defend ourselves, to defend our honor and our pride, especially if our name is being defamed. But here Jesus doesn't, he willingly suffers much of their false testimony against them. And he makes no attempt to defend himself before his accusers here. Where Jesus stumped the religious leaders just a couple chapters ago and confounded their wisdom, here he remains silent in the midst of this accusation. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, we see Jesus willingly go. But Jesus remains silent. He doesn't answer. So Pilate is amazed. He was stunned that a man would face so much accusation and say nothing in response. Perhaps this made him want to release Jesus all the more because of this. This man is unique in something special. What kind of man doesn't defend himself against this kind of testimony? But it's also at this point that Mark tells us that during this Passover time, Pilate would release a prisoner for the people. My guess is he would do this to keep the peace in that region during Passover. As we remember, Passover was a very stressful time for the Roman government. And and the Jews would often revolt during Passover as they reflected on God's deliverance of their nation from Egypt. And so during this time, there was often much rebellion, much anarchy going on. And so Pilate, trying to quell this, agrees to let a prisoner go every Passover to try to keep them at bay and at peace. It's here where we learn of a man named Barabbas. He was apparently in prison because he committed murder during one of these rebellions against Rome. He was most likely a well-known freedom fighter here. And here we find a rebellious murderer in prison. And after being told this, it's at this point that the crowd comes to Pilate in the morning, and they begin to demand the release of the prisoner that they were, were, were used to getting on Passover. And so Pilate here seizes this opportunity, and he tries to get Jesus released. You see, Pilate knows. He knows that Jesus is innocent of the charges that the chief priests were accusing of him. And he's only there because they were jealous of him. And they were jealous of his popularity. He knows that the chief priests are wrongly and falsely accusing of him. So Pilate, desiring to spare this man whom he's been stunned with and keep the real rebels and murderers in prison, says to the crowd, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Trying to get him off the hook here. And you can only imagine the frustration and the intense anger and the rage that the Pharisees must be feeling right now. They've overcome so many different obstacles to try to get Jesus put to death. And here at the very end, Pilate's trying to set him free. So we read that using all their influence and power, they influence the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead, to get a murderer. Off the hook instead. And after Pilate hears this, he's still not done trying to get Jesus released. For he asks them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? It seems that Pilate is trying to get the crowd to also demand the release of Jesus. Release him too. He's trying to do what the religious leaders here seem to want. But despite this attempt, the Jewish leaders got the crowd to begin shouting, Crucify him. And Pilate asked one more time, Why? What wrong has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Pilate, being the politician that he was, and then wanting to remain in power as the Jewish rulers did, gives in to the crowd's request. He can't afford to not keep the peace. He didn't keep the peace; he'd be removed from power, plain and simple. So, desiring to satisfy the crowd, he releases Barabbas to them, and has Jesus flogged and handed over for crucifixion. And in this, a rebellious murderer is released. While tragic, this pictures perfectly for us what Jesus is doing as he goes to his death. In this. Great exchange for rabbis, for Jesus. We see Jesus' life being given over for sinners so that they might live. Being given over for those who are rebellious murderers of hearts. And here we see Jesus being taken so that we might go free. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so it is here in this picture that we see Jesus being traded for the unrighteous sinners that we are, so that we might go free and be forgiven against God, our sins against God. So Jesus is handed over. He's handed over to the Roman government. But before Jesus is crucified here, he is first flogged. He's first flogged. Did you catch that? We can just glance right over this. But this would have been incredibly painful and incredibly bloody. And I won't go into all the details, but he would have been lashed over and over and over again until he wasn't even recognizable. And these Roman floggings were so bad that the person receiving them often wouldn't survive at all. But they're not done yet. For we read that after flogging Jesus, The soldiers then lead Jesus away into the palace to further mock and humiliate him. They dress him in a purple robe designed for those of nobility. And and twisting a crown of thorns together, they drive it into his scalp. They give him the appearance of a king in a very crude fashion. And then they begin to mockingly say, "Hell, king of the Jews. And while came, they began to hit him on the head, no doubt driving the crown of thorns deeper into his head and causing great bloodshed. And they also spit on him and further humiliate him by pretending to pay him respect as they get down on their knees. Jesus, the true king of the world, of this universe, willingly beaten, mocked, and scorned. And he endures it all for our. Sins against God. He does this on our behalf, though he did no wrong. And so he takes blow after blow, humiliation and scorn, and he does not revile in return. Jesus, in response to his enemy, suffers their enemy, their evil, and their wrong, so that we might be saved. But there's still much we read that he has left to endure they now strip him of his purple robe and they lead him away to be crucified. Now it was custom for the person who was to be crucified to carry tool of their own death. It was an act of humiliation. It might be something like having someone dig their own grave before killing them and then putting them in it. However, Jesus, being incredibly weak from the flogging and the beatings that he took, isn't strong enough to carry his own cross anymore. He's been broken down to almost nothing. So they instead compel a man that is passing by to carry the cross for Jesus. They get specifically Simon a Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And why Mark includes these interesting details, we don't know what's so special about them. And the only guess we have is that the early church must have known who they were. Rufus might also be the same one that Paul writes about in Romans 16, verse 13. though we can't know with absolute certainty. But either way, Simon of Cyrene, this man, carries Jesus' cross because he is far too weak anymore to carry it himself. So they finally bring Jesus to the place that he is to die, the place of the skull. And here we find people die horrible deaths. So they try to give him wine mixed with myrrh. And perhaps this was a merciful way to dull the pain. We're not entirely sure. But either way, Jesus refuses this painkiller, so to speak. He refuses to take this wine. And in so doing, Jesus will face the full weight of pain and agony for us. He will bear our sins on that cross and he will not be convoluted in his mission despite everything that he's already gone through and so then they begin to crucify jesus there in that place and they strip him naked and they nail him to that wretched cross they put nails through his wrists his hands his feet and he would hang there and try to hold himself up to keep from suffocating And while Jesus is crucified there, hanging naked and ashamed, the soldiers defied his clothes among themselves by casting lots. So we see Jesus here, stripped and bare of all things before all people. According to Mark, all of this occurs around nine in the morning. And while Jesus hangs there, we read a sign put above his head a sign of the charge against him, the king of the Jews. And then on his left and right, we also read of two criminals that are also crucified with him. Here is Jesus, the king of the earth, crucified as a rebellious murderer, as an evil person, and he is crucified most likely in the place of Barabbas. And so while Jesus hangs there, there passes by further mockers and and scorners and they shake their head in disappointment and disbelief and they say ha the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself by coming down from the cross as they mock they do so without understanding for if they did then they would realize that jesus's temple body is being destroyed just as he prophesied and that his body would be raised again three days later. And as they ask him to come down from that cross and save himself, they are asking for their own damnation and destruction. For we cannot be saved unless Jesus saves on that cross. In the same way, others join in mocking. The chief priests finally take their shot at Jesus. And they say, well, he saved others but he cannot save himself let the messiah the king of israel come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him taunted him others join in on the mocking of jesus while he hangs there and in so doing they bring greater condemnation on themselves yes jesus did indeed save others but now they call on him to save himself so that they might believe what they want to believe in is not a crucified messiah but a reigning and conquering king and when jesus didn't deliver they quickly sacrificed him reviled him and crucified him these people had in their minds what kind of messiah was worth believing in and it was one who would deliver them from their physical oppressors the romans this was the only type of Messiah worth believing and trusting, not a crucified one. And sadly, I think sometimes we can do similar things. We can conceive of Jesus only being worth following and believing in if he gives me what I think I need. I'll follow and believe in Jesus if he's the type of Messiah that gives me what I want, if he delivers me from loneliness, from poverty from my perceived oppressors, from pain and suffering and so on and so forth. Jesus, if you do this, then I'll believe in you. But if not, forget you. Crucify him. We thank God that he doesn't give us what we think we need, lest we be damned to hell for all eternity. Instead, he gives us what we truly need. For what we need is something far greater than salvation from physical, or temporal enemies here on earth. We need rescuing from our sinful and rebellious hearts against God. For our sins against a holy and perfect God brings about his just and righteous wrath against us. And unless someone steps in to absorb that wrath for us, we are completely doomed due to our own sin against God. But thankfully here, As we see Jesus, the true and the righteous king over the earth, he has stepped in to give us what we truly need. Jesus takes the fierce wrath of God for those who would believe in him and trust in him. He takes the curse of sin on him so that we might be made righteous before God. He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that we might be forgiven and accepted before him. And in the remaining verses this morning, This is what we see Jesus doing for those in Christ. We read that once it was noon, darkness covered the entirety of the land until about three. When it was supposed to be the brightest out at noon, we now instead find darkness as something unique and horrifying is happening here in this moment. This is not an eclipse because an eclipse would never last this long. But instead, we see something here, like the ninth plague that fell upon Egypt, where everything is covered in pure darkness. And we see this darkness for three hours. And right around 3 p.m., we see Jesus, who hasn't said much of anything at all, finally say something. And he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? For the first time, and with great anguish, Jesus experiences not the favor of God as the beloved son of God any longer, but the fierce wrath of God as the Passover lamb. His father's face is turned away from his only dearly beloved son as our sins are placed upon him in those dark hours. And it drives Jesus to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And while we can never, ever fully comprehend what takes place at this moment, we do know that Jesus suffers the greatest pain there ever was in this moment for us. He suffers rejection from God the Father. Some were standing there, and as they hear Jesus say these words, they misunderstand him. They think Jesus is calling Elijah to rescue him. Maybe they think Eloi is Eli, so maybe he's calling Elijah to come down and rescue. But either way, they they run over to Jesus then, and they try to give him some sour wine to extend his life. They want to see maybe Elijah will come down and rescue him, but Jesus will not come down from the cross. He is determined to stay the course on mission. And instead, he cries out loud one final time, takes his last breath, and then he passes away. And at this moment, we're told that the curtain in the temple is miraculously torn from top to bottom. Not bottom up, but top to bottom. This curtain kept the holy part of the temple closed off from others. And here it is, being ripped open at the death of Jesus. What does it all mean? It is in this way that we see God divinely saying, The way to me is no longer closed off by this curtain. Jesus, through his sacrificial death, has made a way into my presence. The temple is no longer needed. Jesus is the new and better temple. And then there's also one more detail that Mark makes sure to include at the death of, his, of Jesus. We find that with his death, the centurion, who is observing all of this, when he saw the way that Jesus died, exclaims, truly, this man was the son of God. This was the same man who was responsible for crucifying Jesus and ensuring his death. And here he stands saying, Jesus is the Son of God. No one in Mark up to this point has claimed that he truly is up until now. And so we find that even though Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, we now see his enemy, the centurion, who saw his death claiming Jesus is the Son of God. Through watching him crucified and watching him die, He comes to understand his true identity at the end. And it's recorded for us, too, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent for us. So as we consider the crucifixion of Jesus here this morning, what are we to take away? If nothing else, I want us to know who Jesus is. I want us to truly know his identity as the Messiah as the Son of God revealed to us. I want us to see him as the hero of the story. He is the one who rescues us against all odds. He is the one who rescues us from the greatest evil that ever existed. Our sins, our rebellious hearts against God. So know Jesus as your Savior, as your King, as the very Son of God sent to save you. Know of his love, that he suffered horrific things for you so that you might go free. He suffered great beatings, insult after insult, and shame we couldn't imagine. And he does this for all of us. But more than this, know that Jesus took the most horrifying penalty there ever was to fall on us, God's wrath, and he bore it for us on that cross. So if you are ever tempted, to question whether or not God loves you, look to the cross of Christ and see Jesus there hanging on that damned tree for you. See him hanging there, the beloved son of God, rejected and abandoned so that you might be accepted and forgiven. And then as you meditate on this glorious reality that we sing of each and every week, trust and submit to Jesus as your king. If Jesus did all of this so that we might be saved, then we can trust him. We can submit to him as the righteous, crucified king. And we remember that he died to save us from our sins, not that we could live in them continuously. And so if we truly understand why he died, flee then, kill it, make no room for it, for it was our sin that brought about this horrible death on our Savior, Jesus Christ? How can we continue in sin and make a mockery of what Christ did to save us from? So we instead repent of our sin and we submit to Jesus as King. We turn from our own selfish way of living and we serve Christ. We serve the one who was sent to save us when we were helpless, hopeless, and broken. And in the words of Jesus, we get behind him. We deny ourselves. We pick up our cross, and we follow him. So will you this morning follow Jesus as his disciple, or will you reject and ignore what he's done for you? Gaze upon Christ's work on the cross, and as we've sung many times, be saved to sin no more. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we confess. We confess that we so often take our salvation for granted. We confess that we forget what it cost you to save us. The horrific death of your only one son. So we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done for us. And we repent of our lack of gratitude and thankfulness of all that you've done for us in Jesus. You have given us so many blessings beyond measure that we do not deserve, and yet we so often scorn your gift to us. So help us in our lives to demonstrate the supreme beauty of the gospel. May we live transformed lives as a result of what Jesus has done for us. We can come into your presence now. We can know your favor because Christ has taken the curse for us. We can know you and be filled with joy and peace that you are now our Father. So we thank you for making a way for us to be saved and to know you. We ask that you would help us to love you, to cherish you, and to value all that you've done for us and respond rightly in serving you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.